This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline cultural and theological issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moe, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. You know Rod Dreher is a New York Times bestselling author. His 2017 book, The Benedict Option, became one of the most discussed volumes in recent Christian history. You can also find a Thinking in Public conversation with him about that book. But today we're going to be talking about his latest book, Live Not By Lies. And I think it's, if anything, an even more important book than The Benedict Option. You also know Rod Dreher as a very influential writer online and in print for the American conservative. He has a long career in journalism and as a public intellectual. He is right now known as an author who is raising some of the most important issues for intelligent Christians in the world today. He's made many media appearances across the waterfront to the mainstream media, and it is my great privilege to welcome to Thinking in Public, Rod Dreher. Rod Dreher, welcome to Thinking in Public. It's great to be back. You know, the last time uh, you were on the program, uh, you were here on the campus discussing your book, uh, The Benedict Option. And... uh, you know, that was a book that created just about as much conversation as any book written by a Christian can uh, in today's uh, moment in society. I can only hope that the same thing is true of Live Not By Lies, your your new book, A Manual for Christian Dissidents. And so I want to start out by telling you that uh, we had a fascinating conversation about the Benedict Option, and some of that just has to come up in this conversation. But uh, I actually think this is a far more important book, and I mean no no slight to the Benedict Option, but uh, I think in the course of uh, the Benedict Option was most important for its powerful argument. I think this book is not only a, an argument, it's it's very emotionally moving, and I think you probably intended it to be so. I did. Uh, this is really more a book of storytelling, Live Not By Lies, than the Benedict Option. And there is the theoretical cultural analysis in the front part of the book. But the heart of the book is my uh, is made of my interviews with Christians in the former Soviet bloc and in Russia who came through the communist yoke and who have stories about that. Uh, that they want American Christians to know so we can prepare ourselves for what they see correctly, I think, as a different kind of totalitarianism that's coming up on us. Now, we're going to get into this in some detail and uh, texture, but you discuss the distinction between a hard totalitarianism, and we're going to talk about just how hard, for example, a Soviet totalitarianism was, as compared to a soft totalitarianism. And and, and that's not unique to you. That kind of language has been used before. But uh, I, I, I have to wonder if between the time you set out this argument, and when we're having this conversation, you've had further thoughts about the distinction between hard and soft totalitarianism. Play that out a bit for us. Well, you know, I um, I conceived the idea of the book back in 2015 under circumstances we might can talk about later after an elderly Czech woman asked, made the remark that the things she's seeing happening in this country now remind her of what she left behind in Czechoslovakia. Yeah. But I've been thinking about it for a while, and I finally uh, sold the book proposal in early 2019, turned the manuscript in at the end of February and thought, you know, how am I going to sell this book to my fellow Christians? I believe the argument is solid that we're on the verge of a soft totalitarianism. But I remember with the Benedict option, I got a lot of Christians saying you're being alarmist. Things really aren't that bad. 
Well, then, since I turned the final manuscript in, here comes COVID, and here comes George Floyd and race riots and the the uh, militant wokeness now within institutions, within uh, college campuses, within journalism, uh, within big business that's really transforming uh, these environments. I don't think now that I have nearly as much of a challenge uh, selling the argument to Christians who are the least bit observant as I would have just six, seven months ago. Yeah. Well, let's kind of trace this through an intellectual history for just a bit and the history of the 20th century. Uh, The Marxists were very frustrated, and Marx himself, as well as Engels, very frustrated. That the uh, the Bolshevik Revolution, of course, they they didn't see it, but the 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 revolution that became known in Russia as the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, they thought it would happen in a city like London or uh, or Berlin, and especially the the more industrialized, the more class dominated, and all the rest. It didn't happen. And by the time you get to the the period between the two wars in the twentieth century. And then especially afterwards, you've got uh, people on the left making the, the judgment that there, there's no way. People are just too far along in a consumer society. Uh, it's just too far along in this, uh, this idea of representative democracy that uh, there's going to be anything like a Bolshevik revolution in London or Washington or, you know, Chicago. And, and so instead, the European Marxists said, We've got to do the long march through the institutions, as you as you use the language. Um, but it seems to me that uh, when you're talking about this soft totalitarianism, it's actually kind of the the backside of that. So if if the the Bolshevik Revolution didn't happen in London and in Washington, or for that matter, in Rome and in Paris, uh, because we're kind of far along in a consumer society and all the rest. One of the interesting points you make, and we're reading the same stuff, is that it's that very consumer society that that becomes the engines of the soft totalitarianism. Right, right. The Bolsheviks sought to, and the Orthodox Marxists sought to capture the means of economic production. But what these neo-Marxists have done, and they did this in the 1960s, there was an interesting flip when everybody lost faith in the Bolshevik, the communist economic right. model. They decided to make uh, the capturing the means of cultural production their goal. And that's what happened. This is when identity politics in the late 60s, early 70s began to supplant class politics in the Marxist mind. And uh, it turns out that this goes quite well with advanced capitalism. You know, right. once you what you can tell people that who they are is what they what they will, what they desire. Well, you can sell them a lot of products that way. And uh, so this is why one of the reasons I think that we've we've lived long enough to see uh, big business, big capitalism uh, become uh, march hand in hand with the woke revolution, because it's all about constructing an identity out of your own desires. But unfortunately, I believe that capitalism is going to see it has created the grounds for its own dissolution because of this. And and uh, the totalitarianism is there and, and Americans know it, but uh, are just kind of apparently OK with it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. you t- Shoshana Zuboff in her book, uh, you know, The uh, Age of Surveillance Capitalism. I pointed many people to that book saying, look, it's, it, they're not going to come and take your freedom. You're giving it away. We all are, by the way. I mean, even yeah. to have oh, this yeah. conversation. Absolutely. I uh, When I was in Prague interviewing this woman, Camilla Bendova, for the book, she and her late husband, Václav Benda, they were the only Christians in the inner circle around mm-hmm. Václav Havel uh, and, and the dissidents there in Charter 77. 
I was sitting in her apartment talking to her, and I noticed that she had a dumb phone on the table next to her, not a smartphone. Mm-hmm. And I asked her about that, and she said, you know, in my family, meaning her adult children and their children, we don't use smartphones, and we're very careful about the internet, because if you've been through what we've been through, you know that there's no such thing as the innocent gathering of personal data by outside agencies. Now, in their case, it was the state. But in our case, it's private corporations, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and so on and so forth. She looked at me and said, you Americans are so naive. You think that as long as you're doing nothing wrong, uh, you have nothing to hide, and that nobody's going to hurt you. Gathering the information gives power to those who have the information, she said, and they will find a way to use it against you one day. And uh, and I, I thought later about this, about how you know, if somebody from the government came to our front doors here in America and said, we would like to install this speaker, it's going to make your life, your consumer life so much easier. It's called Alexa. Make your life easier. But it will also be listening to what you say and transmitting it back to a company. We would know right away what that was. And we would tell them no. But if a big, big business can come yeah. to us and tell us it can make our lives easier, if we'll pay them money to yeah. put it in our house. This is the way that they're doing this right under our nose, completely legally, with our consent. Yeah, absolutely. I In 2017, I was in Berlin. Uh, it was uh, a series of uh, meetings for the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And I was in KDV, the, uh, the famous department store. And it's a great symbol of Berlin, by the way. An amazing place to visit. And I was in there, and I picked up a necktie. And I got a text, and so I put the necktie down and picked up the text, and it was about the necktie. Wow. And uh, it was an alert on the phone, and I thought, you know, I, I, I wanted to run out. Right, you right. Know, what, I, but, but how many of us, especially young people, would have gotten that and said, oh, cool, look at this. This might be a deal for me. I mean, and, and this is how we become groomed by technology, by the uncritical acceptance of technology, which is really a, a collective myth in our in our culture that technology is always good it's always bringing making things better for us we become groomed to accept uh the conditions of our own uh, captivity yeah well uh, let's stipulate some terms here we are now living in a post-christian condition in the west uh, we're living in a situation in which there's a new moral regime in power gaining influence and frankly in motion continually in what they would characterize as a progressivist arc. Right. We have, uh, I mean, the Hegelians are basically in control, and uh, th- this is the unfolding of history and what they see as inevitable. We're obstacles to that. Christianity is a patriarchal and oppressive remnant of, uh, of old Western man, as C.S. Lewis said, that, uh, that is, is, has to be removed, literally toppled off of uh, statue plinths, um, and pictures taken down and names taken off. And uh, but in this in this condition, the powers of cultural persuasion and formation are so unbelievably strong that uh, it's going to take everything in us to prevent Christianity simply being co-opted into a perhaps begrudging part of the system. Yeah, and it's already happening everywhere we look. So many churches, Catholic, Protestant, otherwise, are surrendering to this uh, wokeness, as as we call it, this left-wing uh, social ideology, because they're desperate to be relevant, right? And there's nothing more 
quickly dated than relevance, as, as you well know. But I, I, I think about the stories that I got from these people in the Soviet bloc about the way the, the communist totalitarians controlled people by controlling their cultural memory. This one man, uh, Tomas Shai, uh, in Budapest, I quote him in the book. He said that when he was growing up under communism, uh, the government was constantly hitting them with propaganda, uh, trashing the past. Anything traditional, religion, folkways, farmers, farm life, that sort of thing, it was condemned as useless and old. And what they were doing, they were trying to condition these young people to, to accept anything that the government said to them as, as, as part of progress, right? The grand march of progress. He said that imagine how it is to get to my age, he's in his 60s now, and to have lived through the last 30 years of capitalism and freedom here in my country and to realize that uh, capitalism and liberal democracy has done more to effectively erase the cultural memory in my country and its people than even communism did. Yeah. You know, your book is very uh, Eurocentric. You're looking basically at Western civilization as the backdrop of conversation. We'll get more to that specific context in a moment. But at several points in uh, thinking about your book, I was reminded of what's going on in the ultimate surveillance state right now in China. And it was interesting, the Financial Times and the New York Times both ran just massive articles in the last year or so on the fact that uh, the Chinese people, by and large, are accepting a new social contract in which that surveillance state is just a, a fact. And there was a, 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 a Chinese student studying in the United States and was communicating with her mother back in China. And her, her mother said, yes, but our, our condition, meaning material condition, is so much better than it was. And I thought, you know, Americans reading the Financial Times and the New York Times are going to look at that and say, we never make that trade. And I'm thinking, yes, what you're making right now. Exactly. I think China is the future. Uh, I, and I hate to say that, but when mm -hmm. I, I began looking into China and its so-called social credit system, yeah. uh, I did this in context of reading Shoshana Zuboff's Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Right. I thought, my God, this is how they're going to do it here in China. Or are doing it here. Are doing it here, yeah. yeah. In China, uh, the the state maintains this constant surveillance through uh, everything is integrated with the, the what the work you do on your smartphone, on your computer, what you do on the street because of the right. cameras everywhere, facial, facial recognition, recognition software. <clears throat> they know what you're doing all the time, and they feed it into a central bank. I mean, this is oversimplified, but it's basically true. And so each citizen has a profile, a social credit score. If you do socially positive things, according to the government, like downloading the speeches of Xi Jinping, well, then you get a higher score and you have more privileges. If you do socially negative things like go to church or hang out with people who do and who have low social credit scores, yours goes down and you lose consumer privileges. And so this is how they can control people without the secret police ever having to show up at your front door. Well, guess what? As you said, we're doing this here. The same data, the same data are being gathered right now by the free market, by Google, Amazon, Facebook, and so on. And it's not going to take much to operationalize that to cause an American social credit system that will, and as everybody around us wants to have a higher standard of living, we'll, we will be willing to give up these fundamental political yeah. freedoms for the sake of comfort. You know, I, I saw something, and I didn't intend to talk about this, but I'm going to. I saw something uh, just the other day, um, I, and let me just pause it. I am not a pandemic denier. 
I am not a COVID-19 denier. Uh, we follow on this campus all the social distancing, mask wearing, and all the other things that are quite rational responses to uh, a pandemic, much as would have been called for in the 1918 flu if we had understood better than how it worked. So in other words, I, I am, I am, I am, uh, I'm doing my best as an institutional president, as a Christian leader, and just as an individual, a husband and father and grandfather, to try to act responsibly in this. But, but. I look at that social credit system, and I realize that the way it works in China is that they have the perfect contact tracing system. So even if nothing is ever brought to your attention, and in that giant set of algorithms in the Chinese cloud, they know everyone who's been in proximity to anyone else, anyone who's been seen routinely talking to someone else. And, and so if there then ends up being a problem. Uh, not only do you use, lose your social credit score, but those with whom you associate are warned and i look at that contact tracing system and i tell you what if if it does appear that in the middle of covid19 there are governments and others who are all of a sudden saying there are real opportunities here for an awful lot of control and the question is do they have any intention of giving that up post covid no they won't and in fact i excuse me i think that you know as if we see political violence and unrest, sustained political violence and unrest in this country after the fall election or over the next two or three years, I think that that will be the excuse, too, that uh, liberal elites use to bring about a social credit system just to create, make the whole country a safe space. And I think the whole COVID experience, I'm like you, I'm not a COVID denier at all. In fact, I've been kind of irritated with a lot of my fellow conservative Christians for, uh, for getting their backs up about this. Nevertheless, it is a grooming opportunity for the, the, the surveillance state. And if we are all told, you know what, if you want to get your economy back, then submit to this system. China, its economy is roaring back right now. If we're told that that is the deal we need to make and people are sick and tired of having to sit at home, having to see their businesses collapse and so on and so forth, a lot of us uh, will make that deal because we have forgotten as a people how to suffer. And that was one of the most important lessons of my entire yeah. journey in writing this book. So uh, several things come to mind. I mean, I, honestly, a part of the power of this uh, newest of your books, Live Not By Lies, is not just the narratives that it tells and, and the, the social analysis and the thesis of your book, but the opportunities to connect dots. So uh, one of the things I thought of when I just began the, the, the first few pages of your book was uh, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. Now, you know, several decades old. Uh, and the interesting thing is he begins by saying that, you know, people in the West were concerned about an Orwellian dystopia. Mm -hmm. 1984. And he says, but we now know that that's not what we really should have been fearing. We should have been fearing Aldous Huxley's brave new world. You know, it's, 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 it's not the, the, the boot and fist of 1984. We have to fear it's the, uh, it's the therapeutic placebo, you know, uh, right, right. you know, narcotized uh, uh, culture. But now I have a feeling that, uh, you know, when I read your book, I thought, you know, I'd love to bring Neil Postman into this discussion and say, hey, it turned out it was Orwell after all. <laughs> well, you know, I, I had to think about Huxley, and, and you, you know the story from the book. I, when I was in Budapest doing some interviews, I was riding through the city on a tram with my young translator. She's a uh, married four years, small child at home, a Catholic. 
And she was telling me how frustrating she finds it in among her friends there in the city because she can't talk to any of them about the struggles she has as a young wife and mother. Because as soon as she begins to say, you know, this is really hard because of this out or the other, they immediately jump in and say, oh, just leave your husband, you know, put your child, put your son in daycare and, uh, and go back into the workplace. You'll be happier that way. And she said to me that um, I want to tell them like, no, I like being a wife. I love my husband. I love being a, a, a stay-at-home mom, but it's just hard. This is human life. Help me deal with this. And I, I looked at her and said, Anna, it sounds like you're fighting for your right to be unhappy. She said, that's it. Where did you get that? So I pull out my smartphone, of course, and go to chapter 17 of Huxley's Brave New World, where Huxley, where the Mustafa Mon, the world controller, has this showdown with John the Savage, who lives on the outskirts of society. Now, compare that to in uh, Orwell's 1984, when Winston Smith, the protagonist, meets the torturer, O'Brien. O'Brien tries to grind him down physically to get him to conform. But Mustafa Mod, when he confronts a savage and Huxley, he said, why wouldn't you want to join our world? This is Christianity without tears. And uh, so uh, John the Savage says, I'm fighting for my right to be unhappy. And that's a hard sell to young people and any people mm-hmm. today in our civilization. But that's what we have to fight for. Right. You speak of young people. You know, another work I thought of was uh, Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon, one of the most tragically prophetic works of the 20th century. And uh, one of the aspects of of that work is how uh, Kessler shows the the retreat into the mind, you know, that that eventually the the only safe place was in your own mind. And it strikes me that given the ubiquity of digital and social media, young people in our world today don't have that. Uh, or very few of them do. And so, you know, uh, the, the the powers of social coercion, moral coercion, uh, especially amplified through social media and, and digital media, it's such that if an, an 18-year-old dares to think a thought contrary to the regime, uh, if th- they'll just be savaged, you know, canceled. Uh, yeah. They, they will, and this is how yeah. they have uh, that whole technology has, whether intentional or not, has conditioned an entire generation mm-hmm. to be terrified of of anxiety and of nonconformity. You know, I uh, a couple of years ago I was up at Harvard or in Boston, and I I ended up having lunch with a friend of mine who was finishing graduate work at Harvard. He was European. We had lunch and I said, so what is the most important thing you've learned about in your time here at the world's greatest university? And he said, how fragile the American leadership elite are. I said, really? What do, what do you mean? He said, this was so shocking to us Europeans. Uh, we would go into classes. This was at the Kennedy School of Government. And professors would start the classes by saying, okay, we're not going to talk about this, this, and the other thing today, because some of you have come to me ahead of time and said that it would be too triggering for you. So we'll leave that off the discussion. And this Italian, he was my Italian friend, he said, the rest of us Europeans looked at each other like, wait, what is happening here? Is this a university? But that happened in every class. And uh, you and I were talking before we started recording. I'm scheduled to go speak at a small university here in Louisiana later tonight. And I have been warned by the professor there, hey, you might need to uh, be just be aware that there are some professors here who uh, don't want you here because they are afraid that your words uh, talking about my book will cause young people to feel unsafe. 
I mean, it's just, it's incredible how this has happened. And again, it has not been enforced on us by the government. This has come to us through consumer capitalism and our own free choice. Yes, but uh, to force a bit of a point with you, uh, I think my first thought in reading your book is the distinction between hard and soft totalitarianism is actually a tautology. Uh, I know what you're doing with it, and I'm agreement. With, I'm in agreement with your analysis. But here's here's my point: totalitarianism is totalitarianism, and the distinction between hard and soft is going to be hard to maintain. So, for instance. Let's say that uh, you're talking about the United States. There is no Communist Party to exercise discipline. There is no uh, secret police that is, uh, you know, dragging us out of our homes at night. But uh, I think we're looking at a future in which uh, conservative, evangelical, traditionalist Roman Catholics, Orthodox Christians, uh, Hasidic Jewish citizens, and others are going to be in a position in which their kids are not going to be able to go to law school. Yeah, absolutely. That's so is but that's not soft, that's hard. You know, they're they're not going to be able to uh, enter into certain professions and other things. They're not going to have access to professions and uh funding and admissions and things and so I I, I just want to I want to say that uh, one of my thoughts was um what's called soft totalitarianism becomes pretty hard pretty fast. I see what you mean. Yeah, and I I think one of the reasons I draw the distinction is mm-hmm. because I want to anticipate the charge that I'm an alarmist. You know, yeah. we're, they're not building gulags out in the right. desert. Uh, no, they're not. Not, not they here. Have, not here. No, they're doing it in China. Yes. But uh, they have um, they have softer ways, more therapeutic ways of implementing the totalitarianism. And so that's why we don't see it coming, we Americans, because it's all happening under the guise of helping and, you know, and of social justice and so forth. But these people who saw the same sort of thing happen in uh, in the Soviet bloc, that's why they're trying to warn us. And ultimately, it will turn hard. And I'll tell you one thing, too, that worries me. In the Soviet bloc, at least, if you lost your job within a university or any good job uh, because you are a political dissident, there was always something you could do. Maybe it was sweeping a street, but there was something you could do. But in the Chinese social credit system, because it's a cashless society and everything is done, it's almost completely cashless. Now, everything is done with your smartphone. If the government wants to, it can make it impossible for you to buy or sell. You become a non-person. What's that? You become a, what the Soviets called a non-person. Right. And so what if that happens here? You know, for the first time I, in doing this project, I got in touch with my inner Hal Lindsay and thought, my God, we, <laughs> they really can make it to where we can't buy or sell. And that oh, yeah. is something oh, yeah. new. Yeah, it is something new. And and look, we're seeing it. And, and I, I don't think I have an inner Hal Lindsay, but, uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, I believe that every word of scripture is true. And every word of prophecy will take place exactly as foretold. And the mechanisms that were not imaginable 20 years ago are now quite before us to such an extent that nothing actually needs to happen now for that prophecy to be fulfilled. Nothing technological is now necessary. Everything technological is now in hand. That's right. And, you know, I've noticed, too, in this COVID thing, I bet you have as well, that um, when I go out into the world to shop for groceries or get fast food, mm-hmm. I don't have cash in my wallet anymore. No. Uh, some of my uh, the places I shop, like Starbucks, yeah. they won't even accept cash. Right. And so this, again, is a matter of grooming us to live in a cashless yeah. world. 
Now, uh, let, let's let's just have fun theologically here for just a moment. Uh, a part of uh, a biblical affirmation and what we would call a Christian worldview, a Christian worldview of, of life and meaning and morality, uh, one of the goods is materiality. Uh, we, you know, you and I have had conversations about uh, music streaming versus even CDs. At least you own a CD. It's a material thing. You know, you can lose it. You can file it. You can put it in a machine and listen to it. Uh, you don't have to have, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to announce the entire world what you're listening to on a CD player, but you do announce to the whole world what you're streaming. And uh, so, you know, I, I, I look at that and I think um, that materiality is something that we're, we're losing. So, you know, in the Roman Empire, uh, for instance, and throughout most of, I mean, until Bretton Woods in one sense, you know, Richard Nixon, um, a coin actually had real material value. And and even a bill had real material value behind it in Fort Knox. But now we're in a world in, of lacking all materiality. I, and I just want to say, I think as a Christian theologian, that's a dangerous world. You know, there is a book that just came out this week as we're talking, a new novel called Alexandria by mm-hmm. an English writer, Paul Kingsnorth. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the most important books I've read in a while. Uh, he's not a Christian, uh, though he's interested in Christianity. We've talked about it. Uh, but it's a set in the future. It's a dystopia set a thousand years into the future after an ecological catastrophe. And what the, the point of the book is, is about the body, the importance of regaining materiality in the body. The people who are holding out for the human are those who are trying to resist the techno-totalitarians that promise, if we can just get rid of this body, then we will know everything and be able to live in peace and harmony. This is a lesson for us today, not in the the tradition of the best dystopian fiction. It's a lesson about what we're facing today. I want to take us back into the book, and uh, I really want uh, listeners to this conversation to to read your book. I say that about just about every uh, conversation I have, because I only have conversations I want to have for this program. So that's a that's the filter right there. But there are certain books that I think at a certain moment are really, really helpful to the church. And I really believe that your book, Live Not By Lies, is one of those. Uh, I didn't have to be told where the title came from. Uh, a part of my intellectual adventure in life is that uh, through being a 16-year-old reading um, National Review magazine and the University Bookman and things like that. I came to know of Solzhenitsyn. And then, of course, he won the, the Nobel Prize for Literature. And it was, it was very much a part of international conversation. But then uh, through being active in politics, I came to know, you know, of uh, even the situation when uh, Gerald Ford refused to meet with Solzhenitsyn, you know, one of the great presidential errors of modern American history. But uh, Solzhenitsyn was just a part of how I learned to think in what I would say are profoundly more Augustinian terms. And, and it was a, so it's a young evangelical Protestant kind of comes to terms with evil by reading Solzhenitsyn. So, uh, so this was his final address to the, to the Russian people, or the Soviet people. T- tell us what's going on when Solzhenitsyn says, live not by lies. Yeah, the, well, the Soviets were on the verge of kicking him out of the country, mm-hmm. exiling him to the West. Last thing he wrote uh, in 1974, he sent a communique to them through Samizdat with, under the title, Live Not By Lies. It's a short little essay in which he told them, look, 
People may say that we can do nothing as ordinary people against this kingdom of lies, this totalitarian tyranny, but that's not really true. We can always refuse to offer our consent and our affirmation that what they're saying is true. He said, and I'm going to read this from the book, we are not called upon to step out onto the square and shout out the truth, to say out loud what we think. This is scary. We're not ready, he writes. But let us at least refuse to say what we do not think. And uh, that was the power of the powerless, to use a phrase that was used three years later by Václav Havel in a, a famous essay he wrote to the Eastern European dissidents that made the same basic point as Solzhenitsyn, that you know, when we are powerless to change the system, we at least right. can refuse to say what we do not think. Now, I think we're somewhere near the same age. Uh, and I, I won't ask you, but I'm, I'm 61. So... Uh, the great fact of the Soviet Union, the massive fact of the Soviet Union, framed so much of my childhood and uh, and adolescence. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to understand it, wanted to understand ideas. So I would read the Communist Manifesto. I, I, uh, I actually got a hold of, you know, other Soviet propaganda and just read it. And, and by the way, none of it, none of it made sense, including the fact that it, it, even a 15-year-old in the United States could figure out the only thing that was true of their five-year plans is that they never were successful at all. <laughs> but uh, but they just became you know, the the whole the whole Soviet experiment of, of horrifying repression, and uh, and yet I just think most people who are half my age might as well be hearing about the Holy Roman Empire. No in other clue. words, they they just don't know. And that worries me because it's it's it. it I I think it worries me the way that uh, uh, so many of our Jewish friends in their nineties are worried that this far from the Holocaust, people think of it like Mesopotamia. Right, right. Well, this is why uh, the importance they stress the importance of cultural memory, maintaining historical and cultural memory as a means of resistance. Uh, in the book, I quote a passage from the Czech dissident novelist Milan Kundera, who is quoting, putting words in the mouth of uh, Gustav Hushak, who is one of the communist dictators in, in Czechoslovakia. And he's addressing the youth, saying, children, don't look back. Keep going into the progressive future, because the memory of history is uh, is a weight on them and allows them to have, have uh, the people who remember history. It gives them something uh, uh, perspective by which to judge the present. And so in, in my book, Live Not By Lies, I had this amazing conversation with a young woman from California, 26 years old, college graduate, who happened to mention to me that she thought communism was a great idea, the brotherhood of man. What, what could be uh, better than that? I looked at her and said, well, what about the gulags? She said, what? She honestly did not know about the gulags, did not know about the Soviet Union. Somebody had told her about communism and had given her the song and dance. But here she was, a college graduate in the United States of America, no idea. You know, that's part of the reason why so many uh, college students and others, uh, even high school students and how they're being polled on this, I'm not even sure. But, uh, you know, you see credible research saying that they're so much more open to socialism. And so I... Uh, I, I found myself in conversation with a 20-year-old about this just recently, and uh, he did not condemn socialism the way I thought he would. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, okay, you know, lacking the experience and 
the the entire experience of the 20th century. Let's let's just have this conversation. So I said, so let's forget we're talking about a massive society like the United States. Let's just forget that for a moment. Let's forget we're talking about the Commonwealth of Kentucky or the city of Louisville. Let's just say we're talking about you and your three best friends. How would it how would it work to have central planning in terms of what all four of you would own and what you would drive? and how much you could make and on what you could spend and all this. And, and he said, well, that's, that's, that's something, you know, none of us would put up with. And I said, well, that is the smallest unit of socialism I can imagine. And so you, now you're saying, let's have that controlled by people in the state. You know, this is you just need to bring back someone like Margaret Thatcher, who just pointed out and said, you know, her most famous line was socialism, you know, uh, eventually runs out of someone else's money to spend. But the other thing she said was that when it comes to socialism, you know, she says it again, it doesn't work in your family. How is it going to work at the scale of a nation? Right. Extended family, she meant. Extended family. Sure. Well, you know, your story reminds me of something that happened to me in Moscow mm-hmm. last year when I was over there interviewing people. I talk about this in the book. I had spent three the pre, three previous days interviewing people who had come through the gulag and seen all kinds of horrible things. I was having dinner at the home of a Russian family, Christians, and uh, I blurted out uh, at the beginning, I don't understand how anybody ever could have taken what the Bolsheviks said seriously. The father looked at me and said, you don't understand it? And he goes back 300 years and he takes me through a tour of Russian history for 300 years about how the, the rich had oppressed the poor and the church had collaborated with this. By the time we get to the late 19th century, he said, look, I'm not saying the Bolsheviks are right. They were wrong and they were evil. But you see where they came from, because people, so many poor people had been so beaten down and had so little hope for anything that uh, when the Bolsheviks came along preaching utopia, they believed it. Now, I think that is something we have to think about today, too. Um, uh, Cheslav Miłosz, one of the great uh, anti-Soviet dissidents, a Pole, said that people in the West, uh, this was during the Cold War, you know, they don't really get communism, why people would, would pay attention to it and embrace it in the first place. It's because it doesn't just talk about materiality. It offers people a sense of hope. It's a false hope, but when people are hopeless, this is something they can grab onto and, and seize. But I just want to really come back at you on that because I think that's true, but irrelevant. Um, I can say that to a friend. Because, you know, I I say that just to get your attention. The problem is that the advocates of socialism right now are not the disadvantaged. (laughs) They are upper middle class Americans on university campuses. So, in other words, yes, I I, I understand. I can go back with you, you know, to the uh, to the massive, massive poverty that was such a fact. And by the way, that that. I mentioned the Chinese daughter and and relating to her Chinese mother who is still in China and was making an apology for the, you know, current social capital and credit system by saying, you know, things were so bad. We had so little before. I, I understand that. And that's why I'd understand it if I were hearing this and I wouldn't agree with it, but I'd understand it if I were hearing this from someone in that context. But we're hearing it. It's, it's kind of like Occupy Wall Street. Right, uh, right. But, but the, 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 yeah. whether it's a material fact or not, the sense of anxiety that people have over that maybe they will lose what, what, what gains they've made, that's what the socialists speak to. I mean, you have to keep in mind that in Russia, the, the Marxists never really got anywhere until 
the middle classes or what counted for the middle classes back then started listening to them. It came in 1891-92. There was a terrible famine in Russia. The government failed miserably to handle it. And that was the first time that the middle classes began to think, well, maybe these Marxists have something to offer. Of course, they didn't. But that sense of uh, that we can no longer believe in the hierarchies and institutions that were here, uh, that people open themselves up to something new. And I think that's what's happening here with socialism and even communism in this country. These aren't the poor that are reaching out for it. These are dissatisfied middle class intellectuals. And they think that when they hear socialism, they don't hear uh, redistribution of resources in the way you or I would hear it. I think what they hear is we're going to have permanent security. Yeah. Well, uh, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, you know, they're wrong. Clearly, yeah. they're wrong. But I'm saying yeah. that we. I think yeah. we have to take. And I'm dealing with with my own son, who's in college now, and he's not a socialist at all. But he was really interested in, in Bernie Sanders, and I'm trying to understand why. I mean, you were raised in a conservative home, and he said it's all about insecurity. Because, uh, and I have to admit that the the world that faces him going when he graduates, it's not nearly as solid as it was economically for his father. Yeah, no, I I get that entirely. But then we have to ask the question, why? And what will be the conditions of some recovered stability? So just in the last three days, (laughs) I've been in sustained conversation with a young man who's, uh, who's, who's basically from Silicon Valley. And if you want to see social inequality, go to San Francisco. If you want to see the haves and the have-nots, you want to see a housing crisis, you know, go to San Francisco. The closer you actually get to the new technological world, the more ruthless it gets. So you talk about insecurity. Well, one of the greatest issues of insecurity is you, you can be in at Google today and out tomorrow. And I mean, out permanently. Um, and, and by the way, it can happen any number of ways. But to have one thing is, you know, uh, they... They put a premium on youth to such a point that being 40 means you're kind of already out of date in Silicon Valley. So you look at that and I'm thinking, well, you know, here's the thing. Many of you who are complaining about insecurity, you're actually demanding the conditions that lead to insecurity and forfeiting the conditions that lead to any kind of real security. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that, but this is a hard argument to make. It's one we have to figure out how to make to the, these young people. But mm-hmm. I, I believe just from the, the work I've done that we have to narrow in on that sense that they have that all the institutions of society have failed them. David Brooks has this really interesting article in The Atlantic this month about the collapse of social trust, especially among the young in this country. And uh, I think that they're seeking out a false economic solution for something that's really, uh, deep down, a spiritual and a moral problem. Yeah, and that means what, and this is my great frustration with David Brooks, uh, that means it requires more than a little conservative turn. It, It requires more than slowing down the progressivist train and making some kind of peace with it. It requires some kind of transcendent truth uh, for human dignity and, and, and human rights and human liberty that, uh, yeah, I just, don't, I just don't see coming from the squishy conservative, whatever the New York Times might consider to be a conservative. It's just not there. So, yes, I will look at that same thing. I'll say, you're absolutely right. And uh, Robert Putnam at Harvard has... Uh, Done. He's got another, you know, Bowling Alone and American Grace. He's got another very important book just coming out. It's going to be fascinating. It's going to be important. We'll be talking about it. But how in the world do you 
reclaim social trust or rebuild social trust, when you've destroyed the conditions that could produce that trust. Um, that's why I, I think that's a failed experiment. Yeah, I, I think you're right, too. And when you think about technology, what we're dealing with now, when people can have their uh, entire livelihoods destroyed by someone secretly recording them on a smartphone and using that technology to to it, spreading it to the world. Uh, Sir Roger Scruton, the late Sir Roger Scruton, uh, in the last year before he died, uh, I went to see him at his at his house to interview him for Live Not By Lies. And he had just come out of uh, an attempt to destroy his reputation by a left-wing journalist who interviewed him, and Roger took him in on good faith, and then smeared him by distorting his words. Thanks be to God, Roger had a recording of what he had actually said, and that got out and discredited the journalist. But if Roger hadn't recorded that, this journalist would have taken him down. And uh, it's people are willing to do that now. In this age of ideology, they're willing to, uh, people aren't just wrong, they're evil, and they're willing to tell any amount of lies to destroy their ideological enemies. And this, by the way, is one of the things that made me realize I had a book here back in 2015 when I first heard from this Czech woman we talked about. I uh, contacted uh, this couple, this Hungarian couple, I know in the UK, in Cambridge, they defected uh, from Hungary in the 1960s. And I said, Bela, Gabby, this is what this old Czech woman says. Is there anything to it? They said, absolutely. We're seeing this play out here in England every day. And uh, the main thing they said was the way ideological actors on the left were willing to destroy people professionally and personally for not adhering to left-wing ideology. They say it's madness. My wife and I, said Baylor, are looking at each other every day saying this was how it was when we were young back home. So I want to turn to mechanisms for recovery, um, you know, oases of truth. Chapter 7 of your book, Families Are Resistant Cells. And uh, boy, again, given someone my age, that title, that that chapter title really gets my attention because I know what a resistant cell was. I even know about, uh, you know, the Italian cell theory that uh, became a part of European Marxism. And, and so conservative Christian dissidents uh, created their own cells. Talk about that. Yeah, I, I dedicate the book to a man named mm-hmm. uh, Tomislav Kolakovic, Father Tomislav Kolakovic. He was a Croatian Jesuit doing anti-Nazi work in Zagreb in 1943. He got a tip that the Nazis, the Gestapo, was coming for him, so he escaped the country, went to his mother's homeland, Slovakia, and lived under her name, Kolakovic, and taught in the Catholic University there in Bratislava. And he told the students, he said, the good news is the Germans are going to lose this war. The bad news is the communists are going to take this country over when it's done, and the first thing they're going to do is come after the churches. We've got to be ready for them. So what Father Kolakovic Kovic did was put together small cells of really committed young Catholics who had come together for prayer, for scripture study, but they also came together to talk about what was happening in the society around them and how they as Christians were going to react to it. They also learned the arts of uh, resistance, like how to resist an interrogation. The bishops in Slovakia told Father Kolakovic, said, you're being alarmist. Don't scare people like that. But Kolakovic had studied the Soviet mindset because he wanted to do missionary work there. And he didn't listen to the bishops. He spread these cells all throughout his country. Sure enough, when the Iron Curtain fell, the first thing the communists did, they came after the churches. And Father Kolakovic's resistance cells became the background, the backbone of the underground church for the next 40 years. 
So what I think we need to do now in this country is figure out what that means for us. If, they were in, if we are in a 1943 Kolakovich moment here, what kind of cells should we be putting together to understand together as faithful Christians what's coming and to figure out how to prepare for it? And in a similar way, you brought up the family chapter, the Benda family in Prague, faithful Christian family. They raised six kids as Christians under communism, and not only under communism, but under uh, in freedom in the most atheist country in Europe, and they're all practicing Christians. Now, I asked them how they did it, and a lot of it had to do with the example the parents gave, with the parents teaching them how to spot evil in the world, but not only that, of filling those kids, their moral imaginations, with goodness, with truth, and with beauty through the reading of literature and discussing it within the family. Well, the family is not just a resistant cell by sociological and moral fact. It is so by ontology, uh, you would agree. Uh, this is part of the order of creation. This is a part of what God has done. And uh, to the extent that without the family as a resistant cell, there's no resistance left. And uh, so I think of the documentation that you give uh, in this book, and the narratives are absolutely powerful. And, and frankly, I think to Christian parents or I'm a Christian grandfather. Uh, it's just very encouraging, sobering. It's the kind of things that uh, that we've all been thinking about. Back in 1993, uh, I spoke at uh, a, a big private university, not a Christian university, a big private university by invitation. And it was shortly before I came here as president. And uh, I was asked in a press conference, you know, what is it you're trying to do? I said, I've got to go raise the resistance. And uh, and and they said, to what? You know, what, what, what does that mean? And I said, well, and I, I didn't give as extensive a list then as I would now, but I said, look, the, the, for one thing, the resistance to the Protestant mainline powers that be, resistance to the cultural left, which was already then you know, very, very far along by 1993, uh, and that was shortly after the Casey decision, mm-hmm. you know, in which you know, people active in the pro-life movement, as I was, were devastated by the Casey decision when it came down, because this is all, all this effort to try to uh, to reverse Roe, just for example. And so it's resistance against now a regime that with everything we just talked about, with social media, you know, surveillance, capitalism, uh, the neo-Marxism, the critical theory, and and all the rest, uh, the resistance is going to have to be massively powerful, right? It has to be, and I don't see where we get that power right now. Um, well, because well, the for, left forgive me holds- just a minute, for, uh, and you're answering the question about the culture, which is, I can, I can see why, and let's get to that. But, I mean, the family is going to have to have an incredibly powerful uh, convictional center. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have to start there on the in the areas of life where we do have control, which is over the family. And we're going to have to be very intentional because if we're not, we're going to be blown away. As you'll remember from our discussion of the Benedict option, uh, this monk, he was the prior of the monastery of Norcia in Italy, where St. Benedict was born. Uh, and I told him about the Benedict option idea back when I, I made my first uh, visit there. He said, uh, listening to me, he said, I can tell you that any Christian family who doesn't have that sort of, do some version of this, that is to say, sees itself as with intentionality as countercultural, they're not going to make it over through what's coming. No. But now let's go back to what you were answering in the larger culture. I agree with you, by the way. Uh, 
but I want to come back after you say what you say and, and press the point. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I think the, the left has all the cultural high ground now. Make no mistake about it. They are controlling all the institutions. And uh, it frustrates me to know when that uh, conservative Christian friends of mine think that if we can only get the politics right, even at this late date, they think if we can only get the politics right, politics can turn it around. Look, it's important to vote. I mean, I, I, you look at the future of Christianity, I see the federal judiciary as being the last line of defense for Christian schools and institutions in the future to come. Nevertheless, uh, politics and law cannot save us if the culture is rotten from within. And right now, I see so many Christian families who are looking to, for their there to be a political solution or they they blame their pastors for not doing enough when in fact they ought to be looking we ought to be looking in interiorly and seeing what can we do in our families and in our churches and communities right now to build that resilience yeah you know here we are uh, we're having this conversation shortly before a general election in the united states and i do not want in any way for christians to think there is any less urgency in voting than than when they began thinking about these issues. I want them to see the stakes are even higher. But politics is not only, as Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, you know, downstream from culture. Uh, it's kind of the last line of slowing down uh, a, a political movement, which, which, by the way, it gets me back to, to the very essence of American and English-speaking conservatism. I mean, going all the way back to Burke, and I am a Burkean, going all the way back to Burke, there was an open admission that conservatism is seeking to slow something down. You don't need conservatism when you have a stable culture. You need conservatism when people are trying to drive it in a leftist direction away from its its roots and, and foundations. And then you, you can fast forward to National Review magazine, you know, with the, William F. Buckley Jr. saying it was his purpose to stand athwart history and cry halt. Um, but, you know, the, the, the fact is that... Uh, that if you do an honest historical analysis, the problems have just been around for a much longer period. I mentioned Buckley. So uh, I went back and reread something that I, I've read probably five times in my lifetime. I went back and read Buckley's book, God and Man at Yale. In so many ways, it was a, a seminal text for awakening a conservative movement in the United States. And what reminded me is that, you know, basically right after World War II, before 1960, William F. Buckley Jr. said, Yale's already lost. And to the very same forces that we would now describe. In other words, it was, uh, it was the, the, the political progressivism that was, and, and frankly, a, a, a very ardent secularism mm -hmm. uh, that was in control. And so I realize this. One other thing I want to throw out is that uh, I think Francis Fukuyama is right in his foreign affairs article of several several years ago, when he said that the only conservative grounding of any society in the modern age is a middle class. And if you eliminate the middle class or you gain the influence of the middle class, you eventually will determine the, uh, the, the future of the society. And the reason I raise that is because you mentioned the middle class in Russia, but it was very small, very, very small. And uh, But you look at the middle class now in the English-speaking world, and uh, it's basically giving up all the, I mean, you've, the left say bourgeois values. Well, but the middle class values of marriage, fidelity, investing in children, uh, thrift, hard work, labor, uh, all those things are just being dissipated before our eyes. They were destroyed in the Soviet Union, but 
they're being eliminated here. Right. Right. You know, you're saying that reminds me of going, I had gone a few years ago to a conservative evangelical college uh, to give a speech. This was maybe seven years ago. And uh, just having dinner with some of the professors uh, before the speech and I was asking them, what are you seeing among the students on campus? And one of the professors said, my greatest worry for them is that none of them will be able to form stable families. I looked at him astonished. I said, but this is a conservative uh, evangelical Midwestern college. How is this possible? He looked at me with tears in his eyes and said, because most of these kids have never seen a stable family. Now I looked around the table and all the other professors were nodding. And that really kind of red pilled me because I, I had this romantic idea that this conservative evangelical school, this was going to be a bastion. But this man was telling me that, no, the culture has degraded so much, the culture of family, that these kids don't even, it doesn't even make sense to them. And uh, I, I think that we are, we are, if we are going to have any hope at all of preserving Christianity, uh, or even a memory of Christianity, it has to begin by rebuilding the family. And that begins by making choices ourselves and reinforcing those choices and helping young people to to uh, know, to, to value marriage and, and having children and helping them do so. I uh, cannot recommend this book with more enthusiasm, Live Not by Lies by Rod Dreher, a manual for Christian dissidents. Uh, Rod, you're a friend. I'm very thankful for you as a uh, co-laborer in this great task of building the resistance. And, and you've done a really good job now with, uh, uh, with this book, Joining the Benedict Option and raising a lot of these issues. And you know, as a Baptist talking to uh, uh, an Eastern Orthodox uh, believer, uh, I'm in the position of saying, I can go with you all the way on this book in a way that I actually couldn't with the Benedict Option. Right. right. You I appreciate what I mean. you saying that. And, you know, yeah. one thing that I, I learned from this research and the travels in the Eastern Bloc is that when these Christians were thrown into prison, the denominational lines collapsed. It wasn't that they gave up denominational distinctives at all, but it's that the real, the deep brotherhood they had in Jesus Christ came forth and they helped each other and they prayed with each other. And it made me realize that when the secret police came for them, it didn't come because they were Protestant, didn't come because they were Catholic or Orthodox. The secret police came because they were followers of Jesus Christ. I think the same thing is going to happen in its own way here in this society. And that's why all of us who follow Christ in any sort of tradition need to build these bonds and networks right now because we are going to need each other. That is the kind of ecumenism that I can get behind. And I bet you agree. Yeah, in the sense that I would have to say that kind of ecumenism actually requires Baptists to be more Baptist and yeah, yeah, I, Catholics exactly. to be truly Catholic and the Orthodox to be truly Orthodox in the deepest resources. Uh, we still have very important theological arguments to have, but we're going to argue for each other's religious liberty and uh, and freedom and dignity and the rights of each of us to raise our children as we see fit in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and uh, the right to defy the regime. Amen. You know, a Christian federal judge friend of mine told me, and this is a man who cares deeply about religious liberty, he said that, that Christians have got to fight for the religious liberty of people who aren't Christians, because we are already a minority in this post-Christian society, and we either uh, stick together or we will hang separately. And that's, that's always stayed with me. 
Because whenever I say uh, this is a point of agreement and where we can find common ground with people of other religion or even people of no religion at all when it comes to political rights, the right of free speech. And I'm really encouraged, frankly, by the, the number of people who um, people like Barry Weiss, the journalist Barry Weiss, a secular Jew, uh, secular atheists like Brett Weinstein and his wife Heather Hyde at Evergreen State. They're not believers. They're not even conservatives. But they have seen this soft totalitarianism with their own eyes, and they are looking for allies uh, to stand by them in fighting it. And I'm proud to be with them. Yeah, I think uh, as in closing here of uh, the uh, speech given by Emmanuel Macron, the president of France in recent days, about creating a French Islam. And uh, only belatedly did the Christians figure out that if he's shutting down homeschooling for Muslims, he's also shutting down homeschooling for Christians and Jews. That's right. That's right. That's the way and it works. This is, this is one of the reasons why in the Benedict Option, I, I think I've found so much, uh, a much greater audience appreciation in Europe. It's been translated into 11 languages because these people know what it's like to live in a de-Christianized society and they know how isolated they are and they know how badly they need each other. Roger, I thank you again for joining me for Thinking in Public. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to my guest, Rod Dreher, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find more than a 100 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For information about the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. And until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.